Let's pray together, church. Oh, Father, you are an awesome God. You are a God who continuously and steadfastly loves us, cares for us, and goes the extra mile for us. Father, we, we rejoice in the depth and the width and the breadth of your love. May we, oh God, live lives according to what you've done in us. Open up our hearts, Lord, to receive your word today. Speak to us, Lord, by your spirit. Awaken us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I know that y'all know this already, but your pastor is a, is a work in progress. Got lots of work to do. I make mistakes. I am selfish and greedy. And I'm going to give you a story uh, while we were out of town of an opportunity I missed. And if I could go back in time, I would change it. We were at our stop in Cozumel. And we were, uh, we were waiting to get back on our, our boat. And as we were waiting, we were in a, a shop. And I was picking up some uh, Mexican vanilla for cooking. Um, and, and there were four teenage girls that walked into the little shop we were in. And, um, and one of them had a backpack on, and, and they had stuff jammed up in this little area, as many items as they could sell. And when one of these young ladies turned, her backpack knocked a pig, a porcelain, or I don't know what, what they used, not porcelain, but a breakable figurine pig off the shelf, and it fell down to the ground. And as soon as the sound rang up, there was this Mexican lady right at her going, you have to pay for that. And this young, probably 15-year-old young lady was terrified of this lady who was making her pay for that. And she pulled out her calculator and said, it's going to be this much. And I'm not faulting the lady by any means. But I saw the girl's response and she said, I don't have money. I don't have any money. And she said, well, you need to go get money. And there were her. uh, So she then, in a scared way, began to walk out of the store. And she said, no, you can't leave. And she said, well, I'm just going to go get my money so I can pay you. She said, no, no, no. You can't leave. Send someone. So it felt like the story of of Joseph harassing his brothers, saying, nope, somebody's got to stay here. Well, you go get your father. I don't trust you. And it was that moment I thought, oh, oh and she rang it up. The calculator, it was like $40 for this little pig. It was in that moment I thought, I should just pay for the pig. And I can share with her how God's grace pays our debt when we can't. Pay it ourselves. And I didn't. I didn't do it. 
I'm a work in progress, but I didn't do it. What an opportunity that would have been for four young ladies to hear the gospel. Well, they didn't hear the gospel that day. I hope one day that they will. But I share that story because, um, you know, I, like you, uh, fail at opportunities that are presented. But there's one that doesn't fail. And as we are trekking through the Bible, we, we get to this book called Numbers. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to open up to the book of Numbers. Because while it's named Numbers, it, it begins with... A census, if you will, but it's much more than a book of numbers. And if you're reading through the Bible with us, praise the Lord. If, if you've stopped or you've gotten derailed, pick back up, pick back up. I want to encourage you. We're in the fourth book. We've got 62 left. Jump back in. Don't get discouraged. Get back into the reading. The book of numbers is more than just a census. It is a, a, a presentation of a God who is working through a people to proclaim his name and his character and his goodness in a way that I didn't. God does. And this is where the story of numbers comes in is that God is faithful to present himself in different ways. And y'all, if, if we read numbers as a census, then you miss it. Because there is a proclamation of the character and the nature of who God is that, that enamors us when we see it for what it is. So before we get there, I'm going to set the table with what we've already read. Now, y'all know the, the Pentateuch or is the first five books of the Bible. It's, it's Penta meaning five. It's the, Penta, the five books that are written by Moses to begin the Bible. And, and they're all connected and in fact, if you read them and you study them, you'll see a symmetry throughout the books of how, how they work together and they almost echo each other. And as we see in Genesis and Exodus, we, we have our picture. I hope, I don't know if you can show it, Wayne. Creation, fall, redemption, and then kingdom. And as we see just in the first few chapters of the Bible, we see the creation, the fall, and the beginning of this redemption phase. Or this arc of redemption that works its way throughout the rest of the scripture. But it's God presenting himself and who he is and then calling people into redemption or right relationship. But that call is not, it's a call, it's a purchasing. And when you get back to the word redemption... The word redemption literally means to purchase. And it is that God is purchasing a people. And Brian read that for us this morning. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation for my possession. That the story of scripture is that man was created. Man chose the wrong way. And God purchases mankind back for himself for a great purpose. And, and his verse said it. That you might. Anybody remember what the verse says? That you might proclaim. The excellencies of him. Who called you out of darkness. Into marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 is one of the. Clearest presentations. To our purpose in life. Church. 
And it goes back to this story that begins in Genesis and, and works its way through. All right. Genesis and Exodus is the journey from Eden, where we started, the garden called Eden. It's a journey from Eden to Sinai. And at the end of Exodus, the people are at Sinai, a mountain. It's called the mountain of God or Mount Horeb. They're surrounding who God is. God is in the middle. The people are surrounded, surrounding the mountain. And anybody who is uh, causing problems is cast out. Okay? Keep that, that idea in mind. Because this is not the only time you're going to see the author of life surrounded by his people. And then there be an exile of people cast out who are disobedient. This is going to be a theme we'll look at. In fact, when we get to numbers, we're going to see that theme. And then we got to Leviticus last week. Pastor Stephen brought us through all those laws, how they're, they mean something. More than just the, the case law of what Leviticus is, there's a, a purpose and intent behind what those laws are, are doing. And they're reflecting to us the character of God. And they're showing us how we can show our love for God. And then how we can show it to others around us by treating people with respect, dignity, honor. By paying people back when we, when we mess them up and when we wrong them. And... It was a great message last week. I listened to it twice. And then we get to the next book, Numbers. And Numbers is, and if, you'll, if you'll hear me out, Numbers is almost a mirror image of what we saw in Genesis and Exodus. Genesis and Exodus was the journey from Eden to Sinai. And then you get to Numbers and Deuteronomy. But you get the journey from Sinai to where? To the, the promised land. Right? When you get to Joshua, you get the journey of, of their heading from Sinai to the promised land. Which in, in some ways, y'all, it, it's a new Eden. It's a fresh start. It's a place where God is going to, to dwell with his people. Right? So you've got this, this symmetry in the Pentateuch of God bringing his, God, God creating. They fall. Then he brings them to a mountain of worship. Surrounding him, and then he calls them away from that mountain to a new Eden, if you will, a new place to worship and proclaim his name, where he casts out the evil, and they're, they're supposed to worship him. But what do they do? They don't. They make the same choice that happened right in Eden. You see it? This is the, the story of the Bible. It is a repetitive story. And, and even at the, at the beginning of Leviticus, you're going to see um, pictures of this. That as often as man is given the choice to serve and honor God, what does man do? Man chooses to fall. And what does God choose to do every time that man chooses to fall? Right? You see it? This is the, the story over and over. And, and you thought maybe it was just in the book of Judges because you've seen those cycles. No, no, it's all throughout the Bible. Exile from the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Got all these, 
these circles, concentric circles happening, and, and or consecutive circles rather, happening until there's one who comes who is the ultimate redemption price. And then the Bible ends. How does it end? The last chapter of the Bible, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. In Revelation 2020, in Revelation 22, we have a picture of a tree and a lush garden, if you will, around it. And you have the people with God worshiping. And in its finality, the final end is sin has been dealt with and cast into hell and judged. And God's people finally are able to dwell with him without failing in Cozumel. And making the wrong choice again. And that is the final new creation. You've got creation. You've got promised land, new creation. You've got Horeb, new creation. You've got all of these things. What did they do at the Mount Horeb? What did they do? They're gathered around and they build a what? A golden calf. New creation. New creation. New creation. New creation. Creation, fall, redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. Does that bring a new light to the hesed love that we've talked about? That Hebrew word hesed, the unending love, the faithful love, the love that doesn't stop. Because every time we walk through these cycles of creation, fall, redemption, God is there. And he's saying, I will continue to, to redeem. Right. Now, with that set up, the book of Numbers uh, is, is called in and. By the Hebrews, it's called in the wilderness. It's kind of, it's, that's what it's known as. It's, when you think of numbers, it's more than just a census. It is the story of Israel in the wilderness. It is a, the, the, the wanderings. It is the, the deliverance. It's all of those things that encompass when the nation of Israel was in the wilderness. Now, I'm not talking about Amazon jungle. We're talking about desert wilderness here. Let me read to you. This is from the ESV Introduction to Numbers, which uh, the ESV does a great job, and, and most Bibles do, with their introductions. Hear this. Numbers tells us how God's people traveled from Mount Sinai to the border of the Promised Land. Hey, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? But when they refused to take possession of the land, God made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Fall, redemption. All right. I'm going to ask you a little bit of a quiz. Three-question quiz this morning. You let me know how many questions you get right. Question number one. How many tribes are making their way on this journey through the wilderness? How many tribes? Got your answer? More than one. Good, G-Man. No. Uh, true. True. The answer is what? Thirteen. It's thirteen, right? Ah, ah, now, I thought y'all had read back in Genesis. Maybe not. I'll, let me recap. <laughs> 13, y'all. Back in Genesis, when Jacob or Israel went back to see his son, Joseph, and Joseph said, hey, I've got two sons. Their names are Ephraim and Manasseh. And, and Jacob said, I'm, I'm adopting your sons as my own. And remember, he crosses his arms and he undoes the oldest one. 
is supposed to get the right hand and the, the younger one, he crosses them and Joseph's like, oh, no, you got it wrong there, Papa. That's not right. And he says, oh yeah, I got it right. Because remember, that, that Jacob and Esau, Jacob was the younger. He's, he's doing the same thing. So then, there are 13 tribes and God is about to do something, we're going to talk about it in just a minute, to make it back to 12. And you're going to see, that's a really cool part, but don't forget, there's 13 tribes. All right, second question. Now y'all are all going to be wondering about my questions, aren't you? All right, second question. What miraculous food did God provide in the book of Numbers? <laughs> Manna and quail. You got it. All right, it took y'all a minute, yes. Manna and quail. In fact, he said... <laughs> I'm going to give them so much quail that the meat's going to be falling out of their teeth. They're going to be so sick of it. All right, and third question. How long do they stay at Mount Sinai after the Exodus before they head out on their journey to the Promised Land? Now, this one, there's not a verse, but this is more of, of a, probably an educated guess for you. How long did they camp at Sinai? Any guesses? 40 days? Pretty good, pretty good guess. Anybody else? How long? Two years? Ooh. It was one year, about one year, 12 to about 12 months. And depending on how you group things, but it was about 12 months they were at the mountain, surrounded there. And, and remember, Moses took his trips up the mountain and came back down, went back up, those sorts of things. All right. I told you all there are 13 tribes. And um, I'm not, not going to go there yet. Numbers verses or chapters one through four. All right. Let's let's look at this idea of a new Eden being set up in in Israel and that that creation of all mindset. All right. Consider this. Back in Genesis, what was in the middle of the garden? A tree. What kind of tree? Tree of life and tree of knowledge, the good name. All right. The tree of life, which was what, what gave life. Right? It was the focal point of this is your source of living. Genesis 2 verse 9 says this. Out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight uh, and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle or the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of life was there. And what was around that tree? What surrounded that tree? Yeah, a, a garden, if you will. Just it's, a, it's the Garden of Eden. It was a place surrounding where man could fellowship with God. A place of fellowship and, and Sabbath, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. A place of enjoying what God has made. And receiving the fullness of what God has made. This was a place to fellowship and Sabbath with God. Alright? What happened when the fall happened? What happened when they sinned? What happened to them? Alright, they were sent out. Alright, so here you go, Genesis 3. Remember, the fall was Genesis chapter 3. We're learning our Bible. Therefore, the Lord God sent them out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground with which, uh, from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the entry. So he cast them out from his sweet fellowship and Sabbath in the way that God had designed. All right. Now, if you've read or if you are reading through Numbers and you've read the first four chapters, you, you may remember what the Lord commanded them to do. He commanded them to put something in the center of their existence. What was in the center of the existence of the camp when they were traveling? Anybody? All right. Chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their houses. They shall camp facing the what? The tent of meeting on every side. So this was this tabernacle or the tent of meeting, they called it. And, and I have a, a picture. Now, Mr. Wayne, can you pull up that picture that I emailed? Thank you, sir. All right. I know you may not be able to dig into this, uh, but um, I'll post this on our, our, our Facebook so you can see it. But there in the center, that, that orange square in the center, it says tabernacle there. And then right around it, uh, you're going to see some names of people. It's not terribly important, but it's all right there. And then right on the, on the east side, you see Moses and Aaron are there. And then on the next layer, you see the rest of the tribes. Now, it's interesting in the, the how the tribes are set up here because... Tabernacle in the middle, Moses and Aaron right on the east, and then what tribe, I don't know if, if you some in the front row can see it, what tribe is right next to Moses and Aaron on the way out? It is, it's Judah. Now, why, is, why does that matter? Well, as we know, who came from Judah? Who came from Judah down the road that was pretty important guy? Oh yeah, it was Jesus, that's right. So in the most prominent spot here is is Jesus. The whole key factor of redemption is right there in the most prominent spot of any of the tribes. All right. Numbers 153. I don't know if you know this, but right around the tabernacle, I told you there were some names in that first circle that's there around it. And, and what, who were those folks? Does anybody know? Who were they? The Levites, all right? That's how the, the, the 12 is going to get its, its – the 13 is going to get down to 12. But those were the Levites, Numbers 153. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. Did you hear why the, the Levites are going to be there? So that God's wrath doesn't pour out among all the other people. Well, that's interesting. What, what are the, why isn't he mad at the Levites? The Levites seem to be acting as a buffer between God's wrath against sin and the people in general. All right, keep that in mind. There's another person who's a buffer of the wrath of God between people who sin, right? An important guy. Who's that guy? His name is Jesus. Now, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. From us in a similar way that that this setup is. So we're seeing things that God is leaving pictures and saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm giving you clues, but there's going to be a, a, a buffer ultimately that's going to absorb the wrath every time you fail. 
that you fail to do what I've called you and commanded you to do. Even if you're in Mexico, God absorbs that wrath through his son, Jesus Christ. All right. Now, let, let's get into to some more about how this thing works. And the Levites were, were, was that group of people that represented fellowship with God. Now, I told you in the Garden of Eden, you've got this tree of life in the middle. In Numbers, you've got this tabernacle in the middle, both representing who God is, his presence, what he's doing, that he's a life giver. Then right around that, you have that, that garden, that place of fellowship with God. And then right after, right around the tabernacle, you've got a people that are representing those in, in fellowship with God. And God is going to specifically call out in the first four chapters of Numbers this Levite group to be set apart to go through ritual cleansing and go through all of these sorts of things that need for proper fellowship with God to take place. Let me read to you again. First Peter 2.9 says this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. One of the ways in which the Levites were called out was to have the high priest. And we're going to begin to see some of this uh, in Leviticus. Uh, does anybody remember there was something special on the high priest around his head? What did it say? Anybody? It said, holy unto the Lord, or for the Lord, literally. For the Lord. Now, if you read the beginning of, of, of Numbers, it's pretty neat. There's a vow that, that is given as an option to say, hey, if you want to really say, hey, I'm set apart for the Lord. I want to set my, myself apart for God and I'm going to take a season of my life and I'm going to do these things to say, God, I'm devoting this season to you and I'm going to take a certain type of vow. What type of vow was that? Anybody remember? It was a Nazarite vow. And the interesting thing about that is that those, those, the word Nazarite has the same letters, and if you know Hebrew, there's, there are no uh, vowels in Hebrew, but it has the same letters as holy to the Lord. So you've got the, the Levites who are set apart as a specific people for God, for his purpose, and then you've got a way for others to say, I want to be set apart and holy unto God. And when, when you read that verse, Brian, that you might proclaim the excellencies. You, you hearken back to this royal priesthood. That the whole tribe was called as a priesthood. And then you've got the other group of people who are not really this outer group around the tent. Not the Levites, but the people who are just kind of living. And what do they constantly do as they're wandering in the wilderness? What are they known for? Complaining. Grumbling. Oh, I wish we were slaves again in Egypt. I mean, I wish we were back in Egypt. Right? There are people outside of God's plan. They fuss at Moses. Who called you to be a leader? We don't want to do what you're telling us to do. We, you just drug us out here in the wilderness to die. We're thirsty. We're thirsty. We're hungry. So they're living outside of the will of God. 
and doing what they're doing outside. And so you see, again, kind of like Eden, when people were, were in sin, or when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast outside of that fellowship ring of God. And they needed something in order to have a right relationship with God once again. So here you've got another setup of a, a new creation, if you will. Uh, Numbers chapter 5. Let's take a look here. Numbers chapter 5, 1 through 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put outside of the camp everyone who's leprous or has a discharge or everyone who is unclean through the contact of the dead. You shall put both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile the camp in the midst in which I dwell. So even further, you've got a disconnect of the specifically unclean or those in sin. Numbers 15. I'm, I'm not going to read... All of that right now. But Numbers 15 has a case in which they found men picking up sticks on the Sabbath. They cast him outside of the camp and they stoned him to death. It was a judgment for sin. So you've got this fellowship with God and then kind of a waning fellowship with God. But then you've got the really distinct casting out of sin. All right. With all that said, the character and nature of God is... is is distinct because the Lord ultimately desires that fellowship with us. And as we, we've looked at already, he keeps creating these new creation, these new places for us to draw near to him and to fellowship with him in the way that we ought to. But man keeps choosing to do things that is that are um, that are inappropriate and there are consequences. And he's cast away from the blessing of God's presence. So this is, this is important. God is repeating these themes throughout the Bible because it's an important thing. The greatest blessing we can have is in the presence of God. But because of our sin, there is now needed a buffer or a mediator for us to have that great fellowship that we need with God. And if we choose to ignore that fellowship, we will be cast away from that blessed presence of God and cannot enjoy the great gift that that is. All right. Let's talk about the buffer for a moment and, and how we get from 13 to 12. And here it is. Uh, in chapter 3, uh, the Lord begins to count all of the people in chapter 2. One and two, actually, he counts the people. And then in chapter three, he begins to count specifically the Levites. Now, a few months ago or a few weeks ago, uh, I shared in Exodus about the 10th plague. Somebody remind me, what was the 10th plague again? The firstborn. All right. And remember, the firstborn who died were primarily the firstborn of whom? Of Egypt. And it was those that didn't paint over their doorpost and lentils. They didn't paint that horizontal vertical. And God would pass over all those who trusted and believed in him, right? Right? But then once they got out and they got to Sinai, what did God say he required of them? Do y'all remember? What was it? He required that they pay a price for all of the firstborn of, of what country? Of Israel, of the Jews. So it wasn't that he just took the firstborn of Egypt. 
He just took them in a different way than he took the firstborn of Israel. And he still required it. Remember, we looked at the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I, I owe. And I said, do you owe the Lord something? And there's, yes, the answer is yes, we do. And we owe him, in this case, the Israelites owed him the firstborn. Now, that doesn't go away. And there's a, a, a permanent, if you will, solution for how the Lord's going to take care of this firstborn problem. Numbers 339. And all those listed among the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron listed in the commandments of the Lord by clan, all the males from a month old and upward were how many, church? 22,000. Keep that number in mind. Then he counts the firstborn males in all of the tribes. All right? Firstborn males in all the tribes. Watch this. Numbers 340, and the Lord said to Moses, list all the firstborn males of all of Israel, a month and old uh, and upward, taking the number of their names. Then Numbers 343, and all the firstborn males, according to the number, was how many, church? 22,273. And what's the difference? 273. So what he's doing here, this is pretty neat. What he's doing is he's saying, look, you owe me something. There are 22,273 firstborns that you owe me. And there are 22,000 even Levites. He says, this is what I'm doing. I'm taking the Levites as the price for the firstborn that you owe me. And I'm taking the 13th tribe, if you will, and they're my tribe. And if you notice throughout the, the history of, of Israel, the Levites are never mentioned in those 13 tribes. They don't get land. They don't get anything else. They're gods. He has purchased them, and they become this buffer between God's wrath and holiness, if you will, and the sinful people of, uh, who are surrounded. God has created a buffer. In order for fellowship to be restored in a way that is appropriate for God, that, that stands upon his holiness. All right. The tribe of Levi was symbolically set apart as the firstborn owed to God. In the new covenant, help me out, church. Who is the symbolic firstborn that is set apart for the people of God? It's Jesus. So God is setting up a pattern, and then he's saying, look, now I'm really going to fulfill it, and I fulfill it in the person of Jesus Christ. Put all this together. Here it is. God is a faithful, loving, persistent, loving God who offers redemption to those who fail him. And I don't know if I've got any God failers in this room other than me. But this is a message for you that God offers redemption to those who have failed to fulfill his command for you. In it, he's provided a buffer that God's holy perfection may not be poured out upon us, but that it be absorbed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for my sin. For my failing to do what I needed to do 
in Cozumel and yesterday. God absorbs that for us. He takes that. And not only that. Let me ask you a question, church. What is the center of the New Covenant Church? If you were going to say, the New Covenant Church, our church today, what do we center our focus upon? What is it? About Jesus, right? Jesus is that, that tree of life, if you will. In the center of the church who's fellowshipping with God. And I don't know if you know about this, but in the, even in the New Covenant Church, there are talks of discipline in the church and casting people out for sin and those sorts of things. And those are things we have to deal with in, in an appropriate way, but that's there too. That God's fellowship is what is desired among His people. And that Jesus Christ is the center of it all. So what does that mean for us? Titus chapter 2. Let me read this one to you. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to do what? To purchase, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own, what? Possession, you get it? He purchased us to own us. And who are we? We are a people zealous for good works. Here's the the crux of the message. I'm not as gracious as I need to be. I'm not. And and if I had to guess, I'm going to say you're not either. We're not where we need to be. To be imperfection. But God, with his great grace and kindness, has poured out in love for us a redemptive plan to purchase us through the blood of his son, to fill us with his spirit and equip us to be this people for his own possession that proclaim who he is. What does that mean? All right. I'm glad you asked. Oh, there's so much more to talk about. Let me give you some application. All right. God has purchased the church. He's purchased you, Christian. And he's purchased you for a reason to do things that are more than what the non-purchased would do. I'm going to give you one. I'll give you a couple. Examples of what this means. I've asked you and and pleaded with you, church, please pray for the next month fervently for our passion play. And the reason I'm asking is I'm asking you to be better than I am and to invite a lost soul to see the work of Jesus. 
I failed. I'm asking for you to fill my gaps, church. Can we invite? They may not come. I, I realize that. But can we invite souls who, who didn't grow up in, in this church environment to see who Jesus is? And the work of his redeeming love that he paid for us to hear it sung to them. Because that's the message that we as a church are all about. Uh, The Old Testament, the Psalms, think about, uh, let us sing forth the praises of God, the redeeming, the redemption of God. It's an old covenant theme. It's a new covenant theme. Church, let's do that. That's who we are. We are wrapped up in the story of Jesus as a body of believers. Let's proclaim that. Secondly, maybe they won't come to Passion Play. Maybe they'll come to a small group Bible study. Where we proclaim the redemptive work of Christ Jesus regularly, every week, on this campus. Maybe they'll come to young adult Bible study and hear the message of redemption. Maybe they'll come to Wednesday night service and youth service. Guys, y'all go to school. A lot of you go to, to schools with a, surrounded by people that don't know the Lord. We go to work. We have Clay and Barry teach and share the gospel message every week in this room. And we have guests in there. This is who we are. God has given us who he is. Church, it is our job to proclaim who he is. God is a God of great grace. As we continue to study, uh, there's so much more here that I, I can't get to. But know this. God is a God of unending, perpetual unfailing love that does not stop when we do. Church, let's proclaim the name, the character, and the perfection of who God is because He has spent a lot of time repeating the same story, creation, fall, redemption, creation, fall, redemption, creation, fall, redemption. Let us proclaim it so that that last phase, that kingdom, will be something filled with the people you and I love. Let's be faithful to do that. Let's pray together. God, you are a gracious God who never stops loving us, who continues and continues and continues to love us and proclaim your love. God, help us to be proclaimers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.